0: Letter twenty three of the Shirley Letters This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. The Shirley Letters from California Mines in eighteen fifty one and fifty two by Dame Shirley Louise Amelia Knapp Smith Clapp Letter the twenty third Mining Failures. DEPARTURE FROM INDIAN BAR From Our Log Cabin, Indian Bar, November twenty-first, 1852 I suppose, Molly dear, at least I flatter myself, that you have been wondering and fretting a good deal for the last few weeks at not hearing from Dame Shirley. The truth is that I have been wondering and fretting myself almost into a fever at the dreadful prospect of being compelled to spend the winter here, which, on every account, is undesirable. To our unbounded surprise we found, on our return from the American Valley, that nearly all the fluming companies had failed. Contrary to every expectation, on arriving at the bedrock, no gold made its appearance, but a short history of the rise, progress, and final fate of one of these associations, given me in writing by its own secretary, conveys a pretty correct idea of the result of the majority of the remainder." The thirteen men, of which the American Fluming Company consisted, commenced getting out timber in February. On the fifth of July they began to lay the flume. A thousand dollars were paid for lumber, which they were compelled to buy. They built a dam six feet high and three hundred feet in length, upon which thirty men laboured nine days and a half. The cost of said dam was estimated at two thousand dollars." This company left off working on the 24th day of September, having taken out, in all, gold dust to the amount of $41.70. Their lumber and tools, sold at auction, brought about $200. A very small amount of arithmetical knowledge will enable one to figure up what the American Fluming Company made by their summer's work. This result was by no means a singular one, Nearly every person on the river received the same stepmother's treatment from Dame Nature, in this her mountain workshop. Of course the whole world, our world, was, to use a phrase much in vogue here, dead broke. The shopkeepers, restaurants, and gambling-houses, with an amiable confidingness peculiar to such people, had trusted the miners to that degree that they themselves were in the same moneyless condition such a batch of woeful faces was never seen before not the least elongated of which was f's to whom nearly all the companies owed large sums of course with the failure of the golden harvest othello's occupation was gone the mass of the unfortunates laid down the shovel and the hoe and left the river in crowds it is said that there are not twenty men remaining on indian bar although two months ago you could count them up by hundreds We were to have departed on the 5th of November, and my toilet-table and wash-hand stand, duly packed for that occasion, their occupation also gone, have remained ever since in the humble position of mere trunks. To be sure, the expressman called for us at the appointed time, but, unfortunately, F. had not returned from the American Valley, where he had gone to visit a sick friend, and Mr. Jones was not willing to wait even one day— so much did he fear being caught in a snowstorm with his mules. It was the general opinion, from unmistakable signs, that the rainy season would set in a month earlier than common, and with unusual severity. Our friends urged me to start on with Mister Jones and some other acquaintances and leave F to follow on foot, as he could easily overtake us in a few hours. This I decidedly refused to do preferring to run the fearful risk of being compelled to spend the winter in the mountains which as there is not enough flour to last six weeks and we personally have not laid in a pound of provisions is not so indifferent a manner as it may at first appear to you the traders have delayed getting in their winter stock on account of the high price of flour and god only knows how fatal may be the result of this selfish delay to the unhappy mountaineers many of whom having families here are unable to escape into the valley it is the twenty-first day of november and for the last three weeks it has rained and snowed alternately with now and then a fair day sandwiched between for the express purpose as it has seemed of aggravating our misery for, after twelve hours of such sunshine as only our own California can show, we were sure to be gratified by an exceedingly well got up tableau of the deluge, without that ark of safety, a mule team, which, Sister Anna like, we were ever straining our eyes to see descending the hill there, I hear a mule-bell, would be the cry at least a dozen times a day, when away we would all troop to the door to behold nothing but great brown raindrops rushing merrily downward, as if in a mockery of our sufferings. Five times did the squire, who has lived for some two or three years in the mountains, and is quite weather-wise, solemnly affirm that the rain was over for the present, and five times did the storm-torrent of the next morning give our prophet the lie. In the meanwhile we have been expecting, each day, the advent of a mule train. Now the rumour goes that Clark's mules have arrived at Pleasant Valley, and now that Bob Lewis's train has reached the Wild Yankees, or that Jones, with any quantity of animals and provisions, has been seen on the brow of the hill, and will probably get in by evening. Thus constantly is alternating light and gloom in a way that nearly drives me mad. The few men that have remained on the bar have amused themselves by prosecuting one another right and left. The squire, bless his honest, lazy, Lee Huntish face, comes out strong on these occasions. He has pronounced decisions which, for legal acumen, brilliancy, and acuteness, would make Daniel Webster, could he hear them, tear his hair to that extent, from sheer envy, that he would be compelled to have a wig ever after. But, Justing apart, the squire's course has been so fair, candid, and sensible, that he has won golden opinions from all, and were it not for his insufferable laziness and good nature, he would have made a most excellent justice of the peace. The prosecuting party generally gets judgment, which is about all he does get, though sometimes the constable is more fortunate, as happened to-day to our friend W., who, having been detained at the bar by the rain, got himself sworn into the above office for the fun of the thing. He performs his duties with great delight, and is always accompanied by a guard of honour, consisting of the majority of the men remaining in the place. He entered the cabin about one hour ago, when the following spicy conversation took place between him and F., who happened to be the prosecutor in this day's proceedings. "'Well, old fellow, did you see Big Bill?' eagerly inquired F. "'Yes,' is the short and sullen reply." "'And what did you get?' continued his questioner. "'I got this!' savagely shouts the amateur constable, at the same time pointing with a grin of rage to a huge swelling on his upper lip, gleaming with all the colours of the rainbow. "'What did you do then?' was the next meek inquiry. "'Oh, I came away,' says our brave young officer of justice." and indeed it would have been madness to have resisted this delightful big bill, who stands six feet four inches in his stockings, with a corresponding amount of bone and muscle, and is a star of the first magnitude in boxing circles. F. saved the creature's life last winter, having watched with him three nights in succession. He refuses to pay his bill, cause he gin him calumny and other pies and doctor stuff. Of course poor W. got dreadfully laughed at, though I looked as solemn as possible while I stayed him with cups of coffee, comforted him with beefsteaks and onions, and coaxed the wounded upper lip with an infinite succession of little bits of brown paper drowned in brandy. I wish that you could see me about these times. I am generally found seated on a cigar-box in the chimney-corner, my chin on my hand, rocking backwards and forwards weaving, you used to call it, in a despairing way, and now and then casting a picturesquely hopeless glance about our dilapidated cabin. Such a looking-place as it is! Not having been repaired, the rain, pouring down the outside of the chimney, which is inside of the house, has liquefied the mud, which now lies in spots all over the splendid ten-mantelpiece, and festoons itself in graceful arabesques along the sides thereof. The lining overhead is dreadfully stained, the rose-garlanded hangings are faded and torn, the sofa-covering displays picturesque glimpses of hay, and the poor, old, worn-out carpet is not enough to make India-rubbers desirable. Sometimes I lounge forlornly to the window and try to take a bird's-eye view of outdoors. First... Now a large pile of gravel prevents my seeing anything else, but by dint of standing on tiptoe I catch sight of a hundred other large piles of gravel, pelion upon ossa-like, heaps of gigantic stones, excavations of fearful deepness, innumerable tents, calico hovels, shingle palaces, ramadas, pretty arbor-like places composed of green boughs and baptized with that sweet name, "'Half a dozen blue-and-red-shirted miners, and one hatless ombre in garments of the airiest description, reclining gracefully at the entrance of the Humboldt, in that transcendental state of intoxication when a man is compelled to hold on to the earth for fear of falling off. The whole bar is thickly peppered with empty bottles, oyster cans, sardine boxes, and brandied fruit-jars, the harsher outlines of which are softened off by the thinnest possible coating of radiant snow.' The river, freed from its wooden flume prison, rolls gracefully by. The green and purple beauty of these majestic old mountains looks lovelier than ever, through its pearl-like network of foaming streamlets, while, like an immense concave of pure sapphire without spot or speck, the wonderful and never-enough-to-be-talked-about sky of California drops down upon the whole its fathomless splendor. The day happens to be the inner fold of one of the atmospheric sandwiches alluded to above. Had it been otherwise, I doubt whether I should have had spirit enough to write to you. I have just been called from my letter to look at a wonderfully curious gold specimen. I will try to describe it to you and to convince you that i do not exaggerate its rare beauty i must inform you that two friends of ours have each offered a hundred dollars for it and a blacksmith in the place a man utterly unimaginative who would not throw away a red cent on a mere fancy has tried to purchase it for fifty dollars i wish most earnestly that you could see it it is of unmixed gold weighing about two dollars and a half your first idea on looking at it is of an exquisite little basket There is the graceful cover with its rounded nub at the top, the three finely carved sides it is triformed, the little stand upon which it sets, and the tiny clasp which fastens it. In detail it is still more beautiful. On one side you see a perfect W, each finely shaded bar of which is fashioned with the nicest exactness. The second surface prevents to view a Grecian profile, whose delicately cut features remind you of the serene beauty of an antique gem it is surprising how much expression this face contains which is enriched by an oval setting of delicate beading a plain triangular space of burnished gold surrounded with beadwork similar to that which outlines the profile seems left on purpose for a name the owner who is a frenchman decidedly refuses to sell this gem and he will probably never have an opportunity to see that the same being who has commanded the violet to be beautiful can fashion the gold crucibled into metallic purity within the earth's dark heart, into shapes as lovely and curious. To my extreme vexation, Ned, that jewel of cooks and fiddlers, departed at the first approach of rain, since when I have been obliged to take up the formal delightful employment myself. Really, everybody ought to go to the mines, just to see how little it takes to make people comfortable in the world. My ordinary utensils consist of item one iron dipper, which holds exactly three pints, item, one brass kettle of the same size, and item, the gridiron, made out of an old shovel, which I described in a former letter. With these three assistants I perform absolute wonders in the culinary way. Unfortunately, I am generally compelled to get three breakfasts, for sometimes the front stick will break, and then down comes the brass kettle of potatoes and the dipper of coffee, extinguishing the fire, spilling the breakfast, wetting the carpet, scalding the dog, waking up F. from an eleven o'clock in the daydream, and compelling poor me to get up a second edition of my morning's work on safer and more scientific principles. At dinner-time some good-natured friend carves the beef at a stove outside, on condition that he may have a plate and knife and fork at our table, so when that meal is ready I spread on the said table— which at other times does duty as a china-closet, a quarter of a sheet, which, with its three companion-quarters, was sanctified and set apart, when I first arrived here, for that sacred purpose. As our guests generally amount to six or eight, we dispense the three teaspoons at the rate of one to every two or three persons. All sorts of outlandish dishes serve as teacups. Among others, wine-glasses and tumblers—there are always plenty of these in the mines—figure largely last night our company being larger than usual one of our friends was compelled to take his tea out of a soup-plate the same individual not being able to find a seat went outside and brought in an empty gin-cask upon which he sat sipping iron tablespoonfuls of his tea in great apparent glory and contentment F. has just entered, with the joyful news that the expressman has arrived. He says that it will be impossible for mule-trains to get in for some time to come, even if the storm is really over, which he does not believe. In many places on the mountains the snow is already five feet in depth, although he thinks that, so many people are constantly leaving for the valley, the path will be kept open, so that I can make the journey with comparative ease on his horse, which he has kindly offered to lend me, volunteering to accompany F and some others, who will make their exodus at the same time, on foot. Of course I shall be obliged to leave my trunks, merely taking a change of linen in a carpet-bag. We shall leave to-morrow, whether it rain or snow, for it would be madness to linger any longer.' My heart is heavy at the thought of departing forever from this place. I like this wild and barbarous life. I leave it with regret. The solemn fir-trees, whose slender tops are close against the sky here, the watching hills, and the calmly beautiful river, seem to gaze sorrowfully at me as I stand in the moonlight at midnight to bid them farewell. Beloved, unconventional wood-life, divine nature, into whose benign eyes I never looked, whose many voices, gay and glad, I never heard, in the artificial heart of the busy world. I quit your serene teachings for a restless and troubled future. Yes, Molly, smile if you will at my folly, but I go from the mountains with a deep heart sorrow. I took kindly to this existence, which to you seems so sordid and mean. Here at last I have been contented. The thistle-seed, as you call me, sent abroad its roots right lovingly into this barren soil, and gained an unwanted strength in what seemed to do such unfavourable surroundings. You would hardly recognise the feeble and half-dying invalid, who drooped languidly out of sight as night shut down between your straining gaze and the good ship Manila, as she wafted her far away from her Atlantic home, in the person of your now perfectly healthy sister.' End of letter 23 and End of the Shirley Letters Recorded by Rachel Ellen, near Yosemite, California, August eighth, two 2008